something was going on, and I wanted to know what it was. Something involving the Gerasenes, Nephilim, Antimony, Antimony. The word comforted me. Neath's definitions came to mind. Not alone. I liked the second one even more. Against aloneness. This is Allie Daniels. You're listening to Antimony. Episode 5 Ripening Corn and Burnt Sugar. You had your weird ethics class assignment to rewrite the story of the fall of the Watchers as if it's about something good rather than about how evil got into the world. How did that go? We decided we would meet at the library in the evening and share ideas. Delani, Rachel, Neith, Josh, and I found a table in the corner of the reading room. This sounds more like creative writing than an ethics assignment. Ida's basically just asking us to make something up, right? I think so, but I'm not sure why. Well, if ethics is in part about vision, being able to see the right thing, or imagine what would make the world a better place, then doing a little creative writing may stretch our imaginations. Maybe that's what he's trying to get us to do. Sounds good. Except that I don't see how this story can be retold so that it has a happy ending. If we're supposed to keep all the basic parts, which include a lot of people dying and environmental disaster. Well, maybe we should start from what Eater said about switching up the point of view, leaving aside the mayhem and tragedy for now. Uh, let's start with the Watchers aren't falling, they're descending with gifts. Where does that take us? I think we're then back to the interesting detail about how other things on the list of what they taught are vague and general, more like categories no specifics, with the exception of gold, silver, and antinomy. The gold and silver are explained as having a specific purpose. They're made into bracelets and other jewelry. But antimony is different. It says, he showed them concerning antimony. Do you see? It's a specific material, antimony. But what did the watchers show them? What if it's saying that the watchers taught them a whole bunch of things they could use antimony for? Like the things you mentioned in class, microelectronics and TV monitors? That seems a little unlikely given that electricity hadn't even been discovered. Of course, but what if the idea is that the watchers gave them enough information to get their knowledge of antimony's uses underway, like they got the ball rolling? It's quite a versatile element, and it seems like in every age throughout history, when one use of antimony goes out of use or style, another one comes in. For example... For example, well, it was used to make movable type for printing presses. That would be a bummer if you produced antimony and everyone goes digital, but great if it also can be used in computer monitors and microelectronics. 
Antimony keeps coming in handy. If you know what to do with it, you have a huge resource at your disposal. And a lot of people's lives depend on you. In Britain, they keep something called a risk list. It names the basic substances we've become the most dependent on for our standard of living and economy. So, if suddenly no more of the substance were available, it would be really catastrophic to our daily lives. Gold and silver are way down the list. My antimony is at the top. Is caffeine on that list? I'm serious. These are chemical elements. Right now, the biggest producer of antimony is China, followed by Russia, Bolivia, and South Africa. Well, what's even more interesting is this. I pulled this up online. Uh, the mines that produce antimony are all owned by the GFH Corporation. GFH's most recent acquisition is in Iceland, where antimony mining increased 10 times over what it was before GFH got there. Guess what GFH stands for? Grigori Family Holdings. So that's where the GYSP money comes from. Hooray for antimony. I think it's strange, don't you? We're reading this story about watchers who, uh, whose actions result in chaos and mayhem, the point of which seems to be, here's why we're in the mess we're in, you know? Wars, some people rich, others poor, beauty for the sake of power. I'm not even sure what all the magic and astrology stuff is about. And the ethics professor of the GYSP is asking us to imagine it from the watcher's point of view. Maybe it's a little self-serving, that's all. I have time in the chemistry lab next week. I'm going to do some experiments with antimony. Come along if you want. Cool. Hey, all right. Yeah. There. I would also love to know more about the medical uses of antimony for more than animals. Dr. Eater mentioned something about humans using it too, right? Fenton might know how it's used for humans. He's over at the other table. Isn't he the one with medical schools already fighting over him? Perfect. We'll give him an opportunity to show off in front of Xanthia and Aranka. I'm sure he'll be happy to tell us more than we want to know. Sorry to bother you, but we're wondering, Finton, if you can tell us about medical applications for antimony, ancient as well as contemporary. If you happen to know anything about that. Please, Finton, I would love to know what you know. Antimony has been used for various medicinal purposes since ancient times. It was taken orally to stop bleeding in the brain and applied topically to treat ulcerations of the eyes, dog bites, and burns. People liked putting it around their eyes because it contracted the eyelids and made their eyes look bigger. Currently, it's used to treat infections from parasitic protozoa and worms. The most fascinating use, certainly from a medical forensic standpoint, is its former use as an emetic. A vomit inducer. Yes. In the 1600s, people had antimony cups made for the purpose. Put a little wine in the cup, let it sit for a while. The wine soaks up part of the antimony. Drink it and purge whatever irritant was in the stomach. It also worked as a laxative. In the 19th century, it was popular in pill form. It was called the everlasting pill because you would swallow it, the pill would do its work, you would retrieve it, clean it off, return it to its bottle, ready for the next use. Antimony may in fact be what killed the composer Mozart. In his day, it was touted as an effective sweat inducer, and his doctor had prescribed it to him. Mozart may have overdone it. It's very harmful if taken in anything but a tiny dose. 
But if you want to poison someone, antimony could help you get away with it because symptoms of overdose look so much like gastric disorders. Thanks. Happy to help. Fascinating. Definitely. Hey, does anyone know what antimony looks like? I'll pull up a page about it. In its powder form, it looks like this. Kind of dull, like gray dust. In its metallic form, it's really very pretty. Beautiful. Silvery. Look at that chunk with long, spiky crystals. It looks like something precious froze mid-explosion. If you break up the metallic form into little pieces, it looks like this. And there it was. Tiny, glittery morsels that looked a lot like my headache pills. Exactly like my headache pills. It's one of the few elements that it's completely odorless. Was I taking antimony? It would make sense of why the doctor said to keep the dose so small. I tried to remember what Fenton had said about taking it orally. I think I would know if I had parasitic worms. What else was it used for? Bleeding of the brain. Is that what was causing my headaches? My head swirled with new questions. See you all tomorrow in class. Uh, I've got to get to work. Good luck with the assignment. Apparently, I need help with a lot more than the assignment. I am not collecting your assignments. I'm confident you have all worked hard on them and deserve top marks. Instead, you will read yours aloud to the class, and then we will have some conversation about your work. Dang, I could feel my throat tighten. Soon I would start to perspire. By itself, sweat doesn't smell like much. But I did a quick review of last night's cafeteria meal to see what odors mine might carry. Onions and anchovies, not good. I shouldn't have gone back for a second helping of the steak with Italian salsa verde. Xanthi, not surprisingly, wrote hers about the watchers bringing the gifts of makeup and jewelry, two art forms that not only brought pleasure to the eyes, but allowed artists to alter their own appearance or someone else's for the better. She titled her paper, The Gift of Self-Expression. Nice way to get us started, Xanthi. Although I hope the others will be a little more creative in their interpretations. Xanthi looked stung, but then smiled when Dr. Ader winked at her. Delani's was also along the lines of turning the secrets the Watchers exposed into some great gift to humankind, although it was trickier in her case. She had chosen to focus on the statement that the Watchers taught men how to make swords of iron and weapons and shields and breastplates and every instrument of war. Her positive spin was that, although they had introduced armed combat, mass destruction, and the horrors of war to humanity, they had introduced a vibrant industry. They didn't just arm one side and watch them kill off the other. They showed them how to make shields and breastplates, as well as swords, for example. The global military-industrial complex employs many people all over the world, and job creation is a good thing. I tried. Thank you, Delani. 
you're putting the watcher's pedagogy into the bigger picture is enlightening and improves that what the watchers did can be interpreted in a positive light. The watchers would be pleased with your paper. Neith, you're next. I chose to focus on the interesting detail that all the watchers swear an oath that they will all participate in descending and producing children with the women. They're in it together, so my paper's about loyalty and being true to your friends. I wanted to add that it helps if your friends are doing something good and not something wrong, but I wasn't sure if that fit in the assignment. No, Neith, it does not. However, your interpretation of the Watchers demonstrating loyalty to one another, no matter what, is very insightful. Well done. Kaya, your turn. I decided to focus on what Dr. Eater said about the Watchers giving birth to a bold new direction for life on Earth. He, you, said this had to be a positive spin that the Watchers would appreciate, not that it had to be good for humans. So... Here goes. A bold new way of being. The Watchers gave birth to a bold new direction for life on Earth when they created a new race of creatures, the Nephilim. Because the Nephilim would have the attributes of both their angelic fathers and their human mothers, they would be a super race, perhaps superior to both their angelic and human parents. Although we usually think of angels as creatures capable of many great things and possessing extraordinary abilities humans lack, the combination of angelic and human might be even more powerful. For example, focusing on the Nephilim's angelic nature, someone who was half angel could be extraordinarily strong and exquisitely beautiful. Maybe they would even be able to fly. Because angels are immortal, Nephilim could live a very long time and might not be susceptible to the same kinds of disease and illness that humans are. If Nephilim wanted something enough, it would be difficult to stop them from acquiring it or achieving their goals. Focusing on their humanness also leads to interesting results. Humans grow and develop, They aren't like angels because humans have to be born, learn things, and grow up. So the human side of Nephilim could make it possible for them to learn more and develop over time instead of just being static. Humans also need each other, so Nephilim could learn to cooperate in order to achieve their goals. When I picture the Nephilim, What comes to mind are beautiful creatures who glow with an inner light. They are strong, powerful, and persistent. They want to learn more, do more, and have more because they strive to reach their potential. I imagine the Nephilim flying, wings unfurled, radiating light from within, and looking for their next adventure. (sighs) Very good, Kaya. Impressive. Kaya, you understand. He was looking at me directly. His eyes were warm and large. I felt like I was being drawn into his dark, deep eyes that somehow were growing larger, his pupils dilating, and I was falling into a pool of warmth. Something was welling up to meet me as I began to tumble into his gaze. 
I snapped back to myself and realized that something shimmered like gold. May I take your copy? This one is worth saving. Uh, sure. Next week, we begin a discussion of when it's okay to do something to someone else without their permission. After class, I went into the Div School courtyard and sat on one of the wooden benches. It was placed among planters overflowing with bright geraniums and patience, petunias, and flowing green vines. I thought about what we had just discussed about the angels' rebellion and the unleashing of chaos in the world and our strange assignment to rewrite the story from the watcher's point of view. I recall Dr. Eater's melodious voice reciting, Behold, a star fell, and it arose and began to live and eat among those creatures. With a pang of homesickness and grief, I remembered how on hot summer nights in August, Dad would wake me up in the middle of the night to watch the Perseid meteor showers. Wake up, it's time, he would say softly as he sat on the edge of my bed and put his hand gently on my shoulder. It's time, let's go. I was thinking of the summer when I was 10. I slipped on my tennis shoes, but stayed in my pajamas as I padded downstairs, carrying the quilt from my bed. Dad held the red Coleman cooler. I could hear the bottles of orange Fanta clinking against each other inside. We loaded into the Camry and drove out of town, out beyond Six Mile Road where the houses and streetlights ended and the cornfields began. We pulled onto the gravel shoulder and Dad turned off the car. I spread the quilt over the hood of the car, and we lied back. The quilt slightly softened the pinching feeling of vertebrae pressing on metal. The car's engine clicked beneath us as it cooled. The air was warm, even in the middle of the night, moist and sweet-smelling with the scent of ripening corn, lush, rich, musky, like cotton candy overheated, a slight breeze riffled the corn leaves and they fluttered against each other like papery wind chimes, but it was no match for the humidity. The muggy air weighed down on us. I breathed in deeply and imagined the heavy air was the breath of God, warm, life-giving, expectant. The sky was alive with bright white lights it took a moment to adjust to night vision and take in details rather than just be overwhelmed by the wonder of more stars than I had ever seen and the realization that I was awake and outside in my pajamas and with one of the people I loved most in the world, supported by a warm, solid, clicking metal hand and blanketed by God's own breath. We took turns shouting, There! and pointing in the direction of a streaking white light. I thought about how safe I felt watching this show made by meteoroids beyond Earth's atmosphere, compelled to join us, but unable to cross the boundary between us. They burn up trying, and we watch and point and shout. Then I thought of Enoch's story, and imagined the stars not streaking sideways across the sky and being extinguished, but intruding, storming the barrier. I imagined one star swelling in size 
and I realize it's coming closer. It plummets to earth and lands nearby in the cornfield. As it makes contact, the ripe sugar smell blossoms, and it's hard to breathe. Soon other stars join the first, raining down, and it seems the whole sky has come unhinged. The glowing light from the fields is like no light I've ever seen, bright white, and somehow all the colors in the spectrum are visible too, shimmering like the northern lights. The glowing lights rise, and I realize they're not just spheres of light, they are beings. They stand, straighten, their bodies rising high above the cornstalks. I am simultaneously drawn and repelled, fascinated and scared. I want to see them, and I am terrified to. I was snapped from my daydream as I realized I was no longer alone in the courtyard. I heard the clip of leather soles on the flagstone and turned my head to see Dr. Gregory coming from the archway that led to the library. I expected him to walk straight across to the doorway that went to his office, but he strode toward me, the sunlight glinting off his silver hair and flashing in his aqua blue eyes. Kaya, follow me. It is time we had a conversation in private. I caught a whiff of burnt sugar in the air and swallowed hard. Dr. Gregory turned the brass doorknob and gestured for me to enter in front of him. I stepped into a room paneled in mahogany. Large leaded glass windows with small stained glass shields lined the side of the room opposite the doorway. Outside, clouds were forming, and the sky had turned ashen gray. On the left side of the room, a woman with large blue eyes and thick blonde hair sat at an oak desk, staring at a large computer monitor. On the wall above her hung another painting of angels gazing into the eyes of baby Jesus on Mary's lap. I allowed myself a little sniff and got, in addition to mahogany and aged linseed oil, perfume, something by Hermes, I think, and... Yep, there it was again, an underlying note of something rotten. I checked my shoes to make sure I hadn't tracked in something from the courtyard. Miss Hermani, meet Kaya, one of this year's most promising Gregoria Young scholars. Miss Hermani stood and smoothed her red pencil skirt with her hands. Her nails were painted deep purple, and on each of her long fingers she wore a gold band encrusted with purple gems that caught the glow from her desk lamp, sending sparks of light dancing into the room. She tucked an errant blonde wisp behind her ear, where a large diamond adorned her earlobe, then shook my hand. Bring Kaya a refreshment. Kaya, what do you prefer? Perrier? Skyvolt? Well, um... Oh, you have not tried it. Bring her a Skyvolt. Thank you. Skyvolt is made of the melting icebergs off the coast of Arctic Canada. The Gregory family owns the business, has for generations. It used to be quite difficult to melt the icebergs in situ. With global warming, we have only to capture the runoff, one of the advantages of climate change. Hold my calls. This way, Kaya. The room we stepped into had no windows, 
and a crystal chandelier hung from the center of the ceiling. An oriental rug woven in pomegranate red, twilight blue, and roasted coffee bean brown covered the floor. The walls were red velvet. The room felt airless, like we had entered a vault or a tomb. A large desk filled the far end of the room. The wall behind the desk had a large flat screen and several large framed diplomas. The left-hand side of the room was filled with floor-to-ceiling bookshelves, holding leather-bound volumes and small glass cases with objects inside that appeared to be statuettes and small metallic cups. On the wall to the right of the doorway stood a large fireplace with a creamy marble mantle. A large painting hung above the fireplace. It looked familiar to me. Do you recognize it? In the painting... Two men wearing suits, ties, and hats recline on the grass in the midst of a lush wooded area. Behind them, a woman wearing a loose white gown stoops while bathing in a stream. I shuddered slightly at the sight of the water up to her knees. One of the men gestures towards a woman who sits with them, her head resting on her hand, and turned to face the viewer. This woman is naked, Her right leg bent, her elbow resting on her knee, shielding part of her breasts and her private parts from view. Loaves of bread, grapes, and a tipped-over picnic basket spilling its contents onto a disheveled picnic blanket dominate the left foreground of the picture. It's by Manet. It's in the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. But the smell of the artist's materials seemed genuine, If this were a copy, it must be from about the same time as the original. And yet you see it on the wall here. What shall we make of that fact, do you suppose? And the subject? Well, it's, um, what should I say? It's two fully clothed men and a naked woman. It's a picnic blanket that looks more like a rumpled bedspread. It makes me feel like I've stumbled into a scene I shouldn't be part of, like I'm interrupting a party I wasn't invited to. What does he want me to say? My dear, I do hope your time here in the Scholars Program is, shall I say, rounding out your education. You must learn to articulate your thoughts, even if you find them new or shocking or, dare I say, exciting in some way. My thought is I feel a little queasy. Um... It is Manet's Le Déjeuner sur l'herbe, Luncheon on the Grass, his interpretation of the Judgment of Paris, in which the mortal Paris judges amongst three goddesses, Hera, Athena, and Aphrodite. I know the story. The goddesses each appear before Paris, and he's supposed to decide who is the most beautiful. Each of the goddesses tries to bribe Paris, though, by promising him something if he chooses her. Hera offers to make him king over Europe and Asia, Athena promises him wisdom and skill in war. Aphrodite offers him a human woman as his prize, Helen of Troy. Paris chooses Aphrodite and Helen and starts the whole Trojan War. Well done, Kaya. That is correct. One wonders how much the promise of beauty, warm, female human flesh persuaded Paris in his choice. Now my thought is, I feel more queasy. And this masterpiece? Do you recognize it? He took me by the elbow and pivoted me around to come face to face with a white marble statue, about three and a half feet tall. 
I had seen this one before too, at least in art history class. I was pretty sure this was the Varvakian Athena Parthenos, and that she belonged in Greece, in the Archaeological Museum in Athens. The statue in front of me was a small version of the statue of the goddess Athena that originally towered over her worshippers in the Parthenon. The original was twelve times the size of this one and must have been stunning. The uncovered parts of the goddess's body were portrayed in gleaming white ivory, and gold leaf coated her flowing garment and the shield she held in her left hand. But even the small statue in front of us was impressive. Wearing an ornate helmet adorned with a sphinx and two winged horses, the goddess stood with perfectly erect posture, a look of determination on her face. Draped over her neck and shoulders was a breastplate with a gorgon, a snake-haired female monster in the center, and coiled snakes all around the edges. One glance at the gorgon and one would be turned to stone— a perfect protector against the men and gods who desired her for her beauty and her virginity. She is Athena Parthenos, the virgin, the unobtainable, but oh so desirable. She could protect the city and herself against would-be invaders. Ironic, do you not think, my dear, that her followers chose the snake as her protection against the male member? How do I make myself stop blushing? You must not be embarrassed. As a scholar, your mind needs to be open to all the ways people have experienced the divine. He looked at me, then licked his lips, his narrow tongue quickly circling his mouth. I have made you self-conscious, and that is quite ungentlemanly. I do apologize. I was uncomfortable and embarrassed, but also determined not to seem weak or immature in front of the head of the scholars program. I set my yet undrunk Skyvolt down on a nearby end table and tried to think of something to say that wouldn't make me sound stupid or naive. He picked up my glass. Beads of condensation were rolling down the crystal and had formed a ring where the glass met the table. He pulled a red silk handkerchief from his suit pocket, shook it open, and wiped up the ring. He wrapped the glass in the handkerchief and handed it to me. Take a drink. Refreshing and restorative, I assure you. In fact, why not take a seat here next to me on this sofa? I prefer to stand. If you must, Kaya. But I was hoping we could have a talk. Not all of my students hold such interest for me. You do stand out in a crowd, Kaya, although I know you try not to. Your innocence and inexperience are enticing. There are many things I can teach you. My stomach did a somersault. I took another quick sip of water where I tried to think of what to say. I wished Miss Hermione were in the room with us. Would he talk this way in front of her? Dr. Gregory, I am very uncomfortable with the way you are speaking to me. No, no. You quite misunderstand. I have no interest in any sort of physical intimacy with you. I assure you that if I were interested in physical pleasures... I could have my choice of far more interesting and experienced specimens than you. He drew his index finger down my cheek. I shuddered and drew my neck back. I felt sick and stuck in place. There was that word again, specimens. Kaya, it is your special abilities that are valuable to me. Doctors Eater and Kaleo have reported that your performance this week has been exceptional. Your physical self holds no interest beyond a mere curiosity of how such abilities 
came to be housed in such a container. But I have made you uncomfortable and need to let you go. We will continue this conversation at another time, and I would advise you to tell no one about it. The other scholars might become envious. Until next time, Kaya, remember to leave the glass, if you please. Stunned, I placed the glass on Miss Hermione's desk. She wrapped the self-handkerchief and tucked it into my hand. He means for you to keep the handkerchief. He always tells students to keep the handkerchief. Uh, thanks. I walked quickly through the large door into the hallway. I stopped and realized I was shaking. What should I do now? First thing, get away from this office. Second thing, get rid of this feeling like I need a shower. I hurried to the common room where I knew I would find a dispenser of hand sanitizer. I pitched the red handkerchief into the trash can. I turned to the fireplace mantle to use the hand gel, but then stopped and went back to the garbage pail. There were two other red handkerchiefs in the can in addition to mine. I wondered if I could find out who, besides me, wanted to get rid of the token of such a gross experience. I was totally creeped out. I didn't like the way Dr. Gregori told me not to tell anyone about our conversation, although clearly from Miss Hermani's comment and the garbage pail of cast-off souvenirs, he had held meetings with other students. Had Dr. Eater already shown him my assignment? What had Dr. Kaleo said to him? But even though Dr. Gregori was so disturbing... Didn't want to leave the program. Josh was right. Something was going on, and I wanted to know what it was. Something involving the garrisons, Nephilim, Antimony. Antimony. The word comforted me. Neath's definitions came to mind. Not alone. I liked the second one even more. Against aloneness. Antimony, I repeated, and touched my locket. I needed to talk to the others. I would start with Delani. I realized Dr. Gregori had been right about this. I actually had made some friends. Would our friendship survive whatever came next? Angels watching ever around me all through the night. I was excited to have new friends, especially Delani. I definitely wanted to know Josh better, even though he was sometimes annoying, and Neith, Zia, and Rachel, too. They all seemed real, true to themselves with their special talents and ridiculous intelligence, but kind. They didn't make me feel like I wasn't keeping up or didn't belong. Xanthi was a different story. Xanthi had natural platinum blonde hair that hung in waves to the middle of her back. Her flawless pale skin was slightly tanned, giving her a healthy, just-came-in-off-the-beach glow. She had large green eyes and long, thick, dark lashes, but they didn't have the unnatural fullness or length of extensions. The arch of her perfectly groomed eyebrows mirrored the bow of her cherry-colored plump lips that in turn, framed her super white straight teeth. 
She was gorgeous. She even smelled good. Vera Wang, princess, although I thought she overdid it on the application. She was starting to collect a following, and it was easy to see why. Everyone wanted to be close to her, be like her, be her. Her beauty looked effortless. She hosted parties in her room, let others try on her beautiful clothes and jewelry. She even gave some of it away. Zia showed up at breakfast one morning with a silver bracelet engraved with a pattern of delicate wildflowers. Xanthi gave it to me. Isn't it pretty? Why did she give it to you? She called it a friendship bracelet. Funny, right? It's a long way from those braided thread things we exchanged at my summer camp. Like the one on your ankle? I should probably take that one off. It's getting a little old. I bet you have nice memories, though, of the person who gave it to you. Yeah, I do. I guess I can keep it, at least for a little while. Xanthi gave Aranka a tennis bracelet. Aranka was an equally magazine-cover-ready, ebony-skinned girl with lustrous, wavy black hair, large umber eyes, full lips, and a toned body. Her ability to turn heads was on par with Xanthi's. She was showing the girls at her table a sparkling link of diamonds hanging around her graceful wrist. No way! Do you think it's real? Xanthi said it is. She said, friendship is a precious gift, then gave out the bracelets. Wow. If Xanthi wanted me in her collection of friends, she had an odd way of showing it. She invited me to have coffee with her. My treat. I said okay, but instead of an offer of friendship, I should have heard a spider eyeing up a fly. So why are you here? At the GYSP. You're not smart. Your resume is boring. You're so average. So I'm wondering what it is about you that got the Gregoria's attention. I was taken aback, but actually found myself appreciative that she had initiated this conversation in private. I could totally imagine her saying it at one of her room parties, enjoying having an audience as I squirmed. My surprised silence must have told her she had taken the wrong tack if she genuinely wanted an answer and didn't just want to put me in my place. No, really. I want to know about you. You must be a very special person in some way that isn't apparent. And I just want to know what it is. Maybe I can help in some way let your light shine. Nobody has to be average. Actually, a lot of people have to be average or below average. If we weren't, people like Xanthi and Aranka wouldn't shine so brightly. Should I say this? She might appreciate the compliment. Okay, don't tell me. Maybe you're shy. I will find out, though. People think my strength comes from my looks, but you and I both know that knowledge is power. I will find out what it is you know. You probably have to study before your next class to be ready, right? She's dismissing me. I could see people wrench their gaze away from Xanthi and focus on me. 
I could feel the heat rising to my face. I mumbled thanks for the coffee, picked my book bag up off the floor, slung it over my shoulder, and headed out, wishing it hadn't taken me so long to leave, or that I could have stormed out, or gracefully left, or something other than how I imagine us average people do it. But as I slumped away in my humiliation and outrage, I smelled something clawing its way up from beneath Xanthi's heavy dose of Vera Wang Princess. A stench so rank, it made my nose crinkle and caused a gag reflex in my throat. It was worse than even the undertones I had detected among some of the GYSP professors and staff. I turned around to where Xanthi was rummaging in her Louis Vuitton clutch. She pulled out a small crystal bottle and gave her wrists another spritz of perfume. Then she shook a small pill out of a container and washed it down with the last of her latte. What was that horrible smell? I hurried away, curiosity mixing with my anger, dampening and diffusing it like Xanthi's floral balm had made the smell of rotting diapers subside, but not disappear. By the end of the first week, Kieran and four other students had been sent home. Not a salutary fit was the official explanation, but we all had heard the challenging questions they asked professors and administrators. Now they were gone, and we were down to 15. Dr. Gregory addressed us. Some students have demonstrated their inappropriateness for the GYSB. It is better that they leave before we enter more deeply into the discoveries and knowledge that will be shared with those who are more deserving. How long will I survive? It is beneficial to belong to an elite cadre. More resources for fewer participants. Accept this bonus for your successful completion of the first week. He motioned to a handsome man wearing a white dinner jacket and black slacks, holding a silver tray in his white-gloved hands. The man came over and presented an envelope to each of us, bowing slightly as he did. The envelopes had our names written in red calligraphy on the front and a glob of ruby-red sealing wax on the back flap with an impression of the now-familiar angel's wing. Open them. I unfastened the wax with my fingertip and pulled out a thick engraved card. It read... In recognition of your successful completion of GYSP Week 1. Under this heading was a photograph of Aunt Alina. She was smiling, wearing large sunglasses, the kind that made me think of Audrey Hepburn or some other classic movie star, seated at a table in a sunny location on a stone plaza surrounded by palm trees. Where was she? In front of her was a full champagne flute. She had both elbows on the table. One hand gestured to the wrist of her other upraised forearm as if she were modeling a product. On her wrist was a fancy gold watch with diamonds along the outer edge. It was the kind she had drooled over in a magazine ad where it appeared on the wrist of an otherwise nearly naked movie star. On the table in front of her was a tablet. I could make out a website on its screen. 
Cosmetology and Cosmicology by Alina. It took a second before the penny dropped. I completed the week, and Alina got a prize, a big prize. That meant two things, probably more, but two was all I could formulate at the moment. They knew what would make Aunt Alina happy, and they had really deep pockets. The pocket steps became more apparent as I heard other students' gasps turn to murmurs about what their envelopes contained. Delani got a photo showing an enormous check presented to her favorite blind cat rescue organization. Josh got a note saying a first edition autographed copy of some philosopher's book was on the desk for him in his room. Zia got a note saying she would have a private audience with the music director of La Scala Opera in Milan. Xanthi pulled out a slip of paper and squealed something about a gift certificate for the second most expensive perfume in the world. I kept it to myself that she needed it, now more than ever. A Leica Q2 camera. I could document everything here. Xanthi and Aranka were hugging and bouncing up and down like two Miss America contestants who had just found out they were both in the top five. I wondered how Aunt Alina's reward was supposed to be a reward for me. And while I wondered, I noticed the man who gave us our rewards was watching us and taking notes. Was this part of our education? A test? Make your next week of studies profitable as well. Profitable for whom? I heard that. It's a good question. Let's find out the answer. Angels watching ever around thee all through the night. In the library that night, Neith motioned to me and Josh to come with him to the stairwell. He had his tablet in front of him. He looked like a waiter holding a tray, but the cook had sent him out to a table with a dish of donuts dusted with arsenic or a pizza with poisonous mushrooms. Something is wrong here. What is it? Kieran didn't go home. How do you know? I, I got this email from his parents. Dear Neith, uh, we understand that you and Kieran have become friends. Since he has not responded to our email inquiring into his well-being, we are reaching out to you. Please tell him we hope he is enjoying his time in the GYSP, and we look forward to his return at the end of the program. Did you try his email? I, I did, but I just got an auto-response saying he's away for the summer. Maybe he hasn't switched his auto-responder off, or maybe he needs a new computer, or maybe the battery ran down in his phone after he put it in the basket at our orientation or okay i've run out of possibilities for why you shouldn't worry wouldn't you check your messages as soon as you could especially if you thought you might be getting a big scholarship or an opportunity to show your invention to some big investor i couldn't relate and his room it's already empty like he was never here like he evaporated maybe the cleaning staff is really quick there's something else right I also got this just now as I was coming to find you. An email. Your names are on it, too. Take a look. The sender's address is spree-is.org. There's a video attached. Delani, what is it? I saw you come in here. Have you seen the video yet? 
Well, let's watch it together. It's just to all of us. Gather around. The video images were grainy and off-kilter, as if the camera taking the pictures was mounted askew. But the image was clear enough that we could see four children, maybe 10 or 12 years old, speaking into the camera while a dozen or so smaller children huddled nearby. They were all dressed for frigid temperatures and parkas with fur-trimmed hoods pulled up around their heads. Their breath formed small bursts of cloud as they spoke. Their message was urgent, their eyes wide. They pointed repeatedly with mittened hands to the door visible behind them. One of the four was crying as she spoke, and she wiped her eyes and nose with her lumpy mitten. But what were they saying? The sound quality was poor. Only intermittent words and syllables were getting through. The rest was crackly static. We couldn't make out enough to know who they were, why or how they had contacted us, or what made them so scared. We should watch it again. See if there are any clues about who they are and and what happened when the transmission stopped. Okay, here goes. The room in the video has nothing personal in it. There are no signs, no pictures, no windows. Just a black steel door in one corner. Otherwise, the room is white. Looks like it's made of cinder block. Maybe it's a storage room? It doesn't look like it's made to have people in it. There's no furniture and just one door that we can see. Anything about the kids stand out other than they must be someplace cold? There's not much to go on other than their faces and the bits of hair you can see under their hoods. But they're at least as diverse as we are. Can you make the sound any clearer? Not really. I can slow it down, but that's about it. I'm not even sure they're speaking English. The first thing I can make out sounds like danger, then gree, then static, then e, Grigori? Of course, we're in the Grigori Young Scholars Program, but does Grigori have something to do with them, too? Then, in the last five seconds, all four of the kids were talking at once, repeating what sounded like Komen, Vien, Coming, then Coma. The last word was shouted as all four turned toward the door. We could see the huddle of smaller children lift their heads and look in that direction, too. A wisp of inky black smoke was curling up from beneath the bottom of the door. Neath froze the screen. I think they're saying that someone, or plural someones, are coming. I want to check something. Yep, they're saying Coleman, they're coming in German, then probably Vienne in French, then English. Coma is third-person plural for coming in Icelandic. Um, they're speaking Icelandic right when the black stuff starts to ooze into the room. We should message back. Maybe someone there can tell us what's going on. You're right. We should try. Here, I'm replying, hello. Send. Whoa, immediate bounce back. Try it again. Nope, another immediate bounce back. 
What do we do now? I don't know if there's anything we can do. We don't know how many people got the message and video. We don't know if we're the only ones who got it or if everyone in the GYSP received it. Should we tell a professor? Like who? Dr. Eater? Who wants us to imagine evil angels are up to something good? Or Dr. Kaleo, who calls mummified children specimens? What? We have to fill you in on that one, but not right now. Okay, so we don't tell a professor. Maybe this is some sort of weird test. Maybe this is part of the program, and they want to see how we respond. It would be a pretty disturbing test. I think those kids are really in trouble, and somehow they've reached out to us. What if the GYSP is monitoring our tablets? Why else take our personal devices away and tell us to use the ones they gave us for everything? That would be very bad news. Wait, go back to the video. What about the first words they say? I know we can't really make them out, but what if that's the message they want us to get? They know someone's coming, so they really want us to know about something before whoever gets there. Or whatever gets there. Got there. Uh, one more time, real slowly. Oh, wow. Uh, think of all the new words we've learned since we've been here. Okay, new words I've learned. Uh, what if mini is the end of antimony? Could be. It's hard to know where one word stops and the next word starts, but they could be saying a couple of syllables before. It could be antimony, just as likely as matrimony or alimony. Or ceremony. Or cinnamony. They're scared. I don't think it's cinnamony. What about yud? I don't know if this is right, but do you remember how the fallen angel story ended? I mean, besides death and destruction? Elliot. The Watchers and women gave birth to Nephilim. The Nephilim gave birth to Eliod. So the question is, who or what are Eliod? And if that's what the children are saying, why are they saying it? And why are they so scared? And who came and interrupted them? Uh-oh. I just got a whiff of cedar, lime, and grapefruit over spoiled mayonnaise. Who? Am I interrupting something? Ugh, Dr. Dranoush, curator of historical collections at the library, and Josh's supervisor had come in. Josh, you are required at the front desk. You have been absent for some time. I should not need to come looking for you. Yes, sir. That is, no, you shouldn't, sir. I'm sorry, Dr. Dranoush. And work tables and carols are more conducive than stairwells for group study. Congregating in a stairwell might lead some to think you are examining suspect materials rather than engaging in an educative inquiry. Sorry, sir. We all exited the reading room, and Josh went back to his stool behind the front desk. The rest of us waited until Dr. Dranoush went back into his office, and then we hurried over to Josh. Maybe our meeting with Rachel tomorrow about antimony will help us figure out if there's something we can do for those kids. First, Kaya and I have our meeting with Dr. Kaleo. I bet Zia would test Josh's theory about our tablets being monitored. I know she'd want to help. When the others walked away, I stuck a finger in Josh's chest. You didn't hear Dr. Dranoush coming? I thought you had superpower hearing or something. 
It was much easier to blame Josh than admit my own slowness to detect Dr. Danusha's cologne and sewerage combo. Josh took some cotton wads out of his ears. Sorry. Sometimes I just need a break. Today you smell like a hotzen. I stomped off toward the door. A what? You heard me. Rats. A really stinky bird from South America. It reeks. Something to do with how it digests food makes it smell like manure. They brought one to the zoo when I was little. He smiled, but I was determined to stay mad, at least for a while. I ran my fingernails along the pane of glass on the library door as I left, hoping it would make some terrible, high-pitched squeal only he could hear. This is Allie Daniels. Thank you for listening to Antimony. This podcast was written by Amy Richter and is based on the novel Antimony, published by Whipfenstock. Copyright 2019. The novel is available at whipfenstock.com, amazon.com, and other online booksellers. Music for the podcast was composed and arranged by Pan Conrad. You've been listening to the voices of the Silver Linings Players, a group of volunteers from all over the world who came together virtually during the COVID-19 pandemic to record this podcast for you. Episode 5 featured, in order of appearance, Lydia Brower as Kaya, Rachel Hunter as Rachel, David Merrill as Josh, Catherine Hilton as Delani, Emmett Pro Richter as Neith, Joel Richter as Finton, Lily Kerr Young as Xanthi, Kadri Holmes as Dr. Eater, Aya Fuad as Zia, Josiah Dykstra as Dr. Gregory, Lurie Penner as Miss Hermani and Dr. Danoush, and Sarah Phoenix Richter as Aranka. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend and subscribe. We'll be back in two weeks with episode six.